Good morning. My name is Stephanie, and I'm so thankful to be a member here at Redemption Church. This morning we'll be reading from Genesis chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he himself not say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me these things and ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because there is no fear of God at all in this place, I thought. And they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say to me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is God's word for us today. Thank you, Stephanie. Good morning, church. Would you pray with me before we get started here? God, we ask that you would be with us this morning. We ask that you would help us 
to see a beautiful, powerful glimpse of who you are in this passage, and we pray that you would help us to fear you, God, appropriately in a way that produces wisdom in us, God, in a way that you would be happy and eager to use even to bring about your redemptive work in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I learned something recently as a parent, uh, and it's that what we fear shapes the way that we live. One morning, as soon as my son Lewis woke up, uh, I could tell it was clear right away that something was off. Uh, He didn't seem to have the same joy or energy that he usually does. He seemed a little bit more distracted than usual. He was always also very teary and and a bit sensitive, and and nothing I did seemed to help. I tried everything, tried to goof around, I tried to cheer him up, tried to get him the right food. Nothing seemed to help. It was a bit of a long morning. Um, We had just gotten back from vacation, and so I asked him, are you excited to go back to school? And when I did... His head dropped and his shoulders slumped, and he told me, no, I'm not. I'm scared to go back to school. And as soon as he said that, the entire morning made a lot more sense to me. His fear was shaping the way that he lived. In this case, it was almost like he was a different kid. And I'm sure we can relate to this, right? Usually when we go through difficult seasons, uh, when we just don't feel ourselves, or maybe even a season where we have some big regrets, it's because at the time we were afraid of something. Whether it's the fear of losing someone's respect or being alone or the fear of disappointing others or, or, or being disappointed, what, whatever it is that we fear and why, it really matters what we fear and it has huge implications for our life. And I think that's what we're going to see today uh, in this passage in Genesis chapter 20. Last week's passage, if you remember, was terrifying. God told Abraham that he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and in response, Abraham called God's justice into question. He basically said, how dare you do that? How could you possibly do that? And, And like a priest last week, Abraham tried to intercede for that city, and he basically was able to negotiate with God that if there were even just 10 righteous people, that God would spare the entire city. But then we saw there were not. God destroyed all of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was just of him to do so. And hopefully Abraham and Sarah have learned a thing or two about God's righteousness and God's justice. But today we are also going to see they also just had to do something with their fear after this. There's plenty for them to be afraid of. This would have been a terrifying experience, but in particular they had to decide what they were more afraid of. That is either the extent of this world's wickedness or the shocking all-consuming power of their God. They had to choose. And I think we're going to see that their choice really matters because what we fear shapes the way that we live. 
It's also important to remember that just before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, he also predicted that in just one year's time, he would bless Abraham and Sarah. They would have a son named Isaac. This was great news because now after almost 24 or so years, the promise is just now a few months away, it would seem. And that detail becomes very important here because shortly after God predicts Isaac's birth, Abraham and Sarah journey to this place called Gerar where they, so, they plan to sojourn. And much like he did back in chapter 12, if you remember, in Egypt, Abraham lies and he says that Sarah is his sister and Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sends for Sarah and takes her as his wife. And so yet again, if this promise is going to go forward at all, this God will have to intervene. He's going to have to do it pretty quickly because he just said it was going to happen in a year, and we know that involves about a nine-month process. So the clock is ticking on this. And so with that in mind, Bible's open. Let's walk through this story now together and try and understand what is the claim that God has in mind for us. In particular, I want you to consider who should we fear and how will it shape the way that we live. Okay, so if we're looking at this passage, now I want you to notice right away we don't get much detail about this exchange with Sarah and Abimelech. We just read that it happened. Then right away we read that God comes to Abimelech in a dream, and we get the sense right away he is not messing around. Look what he says. He says, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. So let's just slow down a little bit and consider why is God so fired up here? And what does this really mean? Anytime we read about Abraham interacting with other nations, uh, we, we have to remember that the whole point of this promise from back in chapter 12 is that through Abraham, God intends to bless all the nations. It's really tempting along the way to kind of forget that and to think that Abraham can do no wrong, even when he clearly is in the wrong in, in this case, and God just tends to like him more than all these other nations. Without a doubt, he does have a special covenant relationship with God, but again, the point of that covenant relationship is that through him, God would bless and redeem all nations. And, and so in, in a sense, God is angry with Abimelech because if he keeps Sarah as his wife, and especially if he has a child with her, well, then he would be standing between this good and holy God and the nations he wants to redeem. This also reveals just how committed God is to carrying out this promise through marriage. If you remember a few chapters ago, Abraham and Sarah tried to skirt around that little detail by having Abraham get his servant Hagar pregnant, and God said, no, no, no. He slapped their hand. He said, that's not how this is going to go. So he clearly wants to raise up this great redemptive nation through an old, barren, married couple. Through men and women even, joined together as one flesh, multiplying children and families from generation to generation, starting with this couple here. And now with that in mind, we do read a very interesting detail. If you look with me at verse 4, it says, Now Abimelech had not approached her. Which basically means that she was given to him in marriage, but they had not consummated that marriage. They had not become one flesh. And so he says to God, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Now, this is super interesting. 
especially in light of what we read last week. Last week, again, Abraham called God's character into question, and he even asked him, will you indeed sweep away the righteous, in other words, the innocent, with the wicked? By the end of that story, we learned again that God is incredibly merciful. He's willing to spare the entire city for the sake of just 10 righteous or innocent people. But we also learned that there were none of them. There were no righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, we even learned that the entire city was sexually depraved. And then here, we have another character asking if God is going to kill an innocent people, and this time it's the king of a foreign, raging nation of all people. So at first, you might expect Abimelech to be another wicked, sinful, conniving, unrighteous ruler like the people we just read of in Sodom and Gomorrah. But the truth is, and very surprisingly, he is not that at all. And it's very important that we see this. He sincerely did not want to sin against the Lord. He even says, look, they just just lied to me. They told me something that just wasn't true. I did it for that reason. And he says, "In, in the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. In other words, I didn't mean to do it, and I haven't even touched her yet. The innocence of my hands, the damage has not even been done. And God affirms this in verse 6. He says, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. Don't miss this. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. In other words, the only reason Abimelech was in fact innocent here is because the Lord kept him innocent. This God is sovereignly orchestrating the details of Abimelech's daily personal life even in order to protect the purity of Abraham and Sarah's marriage and in so doing to protect his promise. Now just as a bit of an aside, if we approach this passage with with a framework of human free will that basically says, well, God can never override us in his orchestration of all things, we're going to have a really hard time making sense of this. Okay? I want you to see this shows us he is clearly all sovereign. He is clearly in control of every detail of life on earth, and he is clearly committed to this idea of marriage, which becomes even more clear when he still roughs Abimelech up here, even though he does seem now like sort of an innocent victim. That doesn't seem to matter because what really matters is the marriage of Abraham and Sarah. God tells Abimelech to return her, and he says to have Abraham pray for him because he is, in a sense, a prophet. He's a representative of God. Abraham needs to pray for him that he would live. And then he says midway through verse 7, but if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die. You and all who are yours. This is, this is really interesting. Uh, first, uh, I think it's interesting because it brings us back to the very same language of Genesis chapter 2, where God said, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And so he is revisiting here, the author, a, a theme that runs throughout, the theme of sin. How will we respond to God's word and warning. It's also very interesting because, again, if you'll notice, this threat includes Abimelech's family and probably even his entire 
kingdom. And so this is basically a threat of Sodom and Gomorrah 2.0. He's saying, I'm going to do it again. I will do it again. But notice Abimelech's response. Soon as he wakes up from this dream, it seems like he basically runs first thing in the morning to tell his servants about it, which shows us he definitely took the dream very seriously. And when he does tell them, it says, the men were very much afraid, which also shows us obviously Abimelech was afraid because if he wasn't, then why would his servants be? Both of these details are meant to show us who Abimelech fears, and he fears the God of Abraham. And remember, who we fear will shape the way that we live. Uh, Next, we read about this encounter between these two men, Abraham and Abimelech. They're both very afraid, but they're afraid for two very different reasons. If you look at me at verse 9, Abimelech says, What have you done to us, and how have I sinned against you that you've brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have have done to me things that ought not to be done. You, you, You can hear the angst almost In what he's saying, he's clearly upset, but more than that, he's also afraid of the danger he is now in. It's not just that Abraham lied to him, it's that by lying to him in this way, he has put him at odds with God. Now at this point, I think we're meant to read this and wonder, you know what? Why did Abraham do this? Especially after God just said he's about to give him a son. And especially after he just saw this God destroy all of Sodom and Gomorrah, and this is exactly what we learn next, Abraham's motivation, Abimelech asks him point blank in verse 10, what did you see that you did this thing? And here's what he says. This is crucial. I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. And so... So why did Abraham do this? Well, in one sense, he did it because he feared for his life. But he feared for his life because he was afraid that the people of this kingdom had no fear of the Lord. Now, that motivation is just bursting at the seams with irony. Um, To to start, I I do want to give him a little credit. It does make sense that he would be afraid that there was no fear of the Lord in this place because he did just witness the Lord decimate an entire region that did not fear the Lord, and they were wicked and unrighteous. But, but let's just consider a few of the other details here. As the reader, we just learned that God was sovereignly working to prevent Abimelech from sinning against them. Uh, not to mention, Abimelech actually does seem to fear the Lord, and we know this as the reader. And so as soon as Abraham says this, it should, it should tip us off, that fear was unfounded. He had no reason to have that fear ultimately based on the reality but more importantly if there is anyone in this passage who does not seem to fear the Lord it is Abraham and Sarah God just told them that he was going to give them a son in one year's time and so as scared as he may have been you have to say handing over his wife seems like clearly the wrong decision But Abraham and Sarah were so afraid of Abimelech and his kingdom that apparently they never stopped to think how God would feel about this clever little plot that they devised. In fact, they were willing to jeopardize his entire promise. Why? 
because they were afraid that there was no fear of God in Gerar. All of this reveals that it was, in fact, they who lacked the fear of the Lord. But Abram tries to explain. Hold on. <laughs> Let me answer. He tries to explain the rationale behind this, and he explains that, well, that technically he and Sarah did have the same father, but not the same mother. And so technically it is kind of his half-sister, and so therefore the lie wasn't a fully a lie. It was just kind of half a lie. Okay, and I can just picture Abimelech rolling his eyes as he says this, just thinking, okay, well, listen, that's really cute of you guys, but it doesn't really help me. Okay, your God still wants to kill me because, yes, she may be your half-sister, but she's your 100% wife, okay? And you left that part out. You may have missed this, too, but Abraham explains when they devised this plot. And, and there's a subtle detail in there that's very revealing. He says that they thought of this whole thing, quote, when God caused him to wander from his father's house. Now, to use that word caused, as God caused, um, basically suggests that he forced him to do this, when in reality, we remember in chapter 12, no, God called him to go, and it even told us that Abraham obeyed the Lord to go. More importantly, uh, God did not call him to wander. <laughs> if you remember, he called him to a specific land that he even said, I will show you. He happens to be in that land now. <laughs> he has been there for years. And if you remember back in chapter 13, pretty early on, God even said, look as far as you can in every direction, east, west, north, and south. This is the land that I'm going to, to give to you. This is a far cry from wandering. But as Abraham looked back on the last 20-some four years of his life, in his mind, God caused him to wander. This reveals Abraham's heart towards God, and it is not one of fear and reverence. He, he does not walk away from this exchange looking any better. In fact, Abimelech has a very legitimate grievance. Abraham has a flimsy excuse. In fact, Abimelech actually seems to fear the Lord. Abraham just fears losing his life. Then in verses 14 to 18, we read what can only be described as a quintessential happy ending. Okay, after these two men fess up and express their fears to one another, they, they sort of, they make it all right in the end. Abimelech actually goes above and beyond. He not only returns Sarah, but he also gives Abraham sheep, oxen, male servants, and female servants to try and rectify this. He also offers up any part of his land that they want for them to dwell in. So no more wandering. Then he tells Sarah about another gift. Look with me at verse 16. He says, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. And I really think there is supposed to be some comedy in that. I really do. Uh, it's like, you know that brother of yours? Wink, wink. You know, I gave him some coins. And then he ends on a very sincere note. He says, This money is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. In, in other words, let it be known to everyone that you have not violated your marriage covenant with Abraham. So, so the promise 
is still alive. Now, to the original Israelite reader many, many generations later, that detail would be very important because for them, it meant they could take a sigh of relief. Oh, okay, I really am descended from Abraham. I am a child of the promise. Then we read in in verse 15 what happens for Abimelech and his people. It says, Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female servants, this is huge, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So until now, we did not actually know that detail. We're just learning that detail. Turns out God prevented anyone from getting pregnant in Gerar so long as Sarah was married to Abimelech. And I think this is at least part of what it means when God said that Abimelech and his people would have surely died if he did not return Sarah. Not only would it possibly have meant that he destroyed them, but could have, mean, could have meant that God would have ended their family line entirely. No more life would come from that people So this is really interesting. At the beginning of this story, both men feared for their lives. Abraham was afraid that Abimelech was going to steal his wife and kill him. Abimelech was afraid that he was a dead man because he nearly sinned against the Lord. And not just him, by the way, but he and all who were his. But in the end, notice, both men were blessed. They didn't die. In fact, Both of them will go on to be fruitful and multiply. Why? First and foremost, because this God is gracious and kind. He is sovereignly orchestrating his promise for his redemptive purpose. This is the one, the promise only he could keep. But also, in a practical way, this will be the case because Abimelech feared him. And he returned Sarah to Abraham. And what we fear shapes the way that we live. And apparently we can see here, it pays to fear the Lord. This is what our passage is all about today, church. I hope you can see the claim already. This passage is urging us to fear the Lord, not this world, because our lives belong to him, all of life belongs to him. He is the source of it from the beginning. He breathed his life into that very first man that started this whole story just 18 chapters ago in this book, and he can do with our lives as he pleases, which means, church, of all that we possibly could fear, we should fear him. We should fear him. We're going to talk about what that means, but it just so happens that this is also perfectly aligned with what Jesus, the ultimate offspring of Abraham, taught us in Matthew chapter 10. He says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Who could possibly be more qualified to speak on this topic than Christ? He did not fear this world. He was willingly put to death by this world. And ironically, while this world was killing his body on a bloody cross, one criminal mocked him 
from one side. And as he did, the other criminal being crucified on the other side rebuked that man. And here's what he said as these three hung on a cross. He said, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. (laughs) What a beacon of light from this dark scene. In other words, Jesus is saying, because you do fear the Lord, my friend, Because you have humbled yourself and stopped your scheming and come to me in faith, I will preserve your life because your life and all life belongs to me. I am the resurrection and the life. Church, some of you, I'm sure, will struggle with this idea of fearing the Lord. And I understand uh, because in our day and age, it's very hard to, to take a God seriously if he does not exist, first and foremost, to love and serve us at all costs. It seems mean or harsh of God to demand that we fear him before we can be made right with him. But here is the point. Until we fear the Lord, we will keep choosing death over and over and over again. We will hate And mock this God until our dying day, even as we hang guilty on a cross. No matter how many times he shows up to our tent and promises to bless and multiply us, we will keep scheming and plotting to try and preserve our own lives, and it will only keep ruining us. Church, listen, God does not call us to fear him just because he wants to feel more important. He is not insecure He wants us to fear him because fearing him is the beginning of wisdom. As we see in Proverbs chapter 9 verse 10. Just fearing the Lord is not about God trying to scare us or or intimidate us. That is not the point. It is about us rightly understanding who we are in relation to this God. Just think of it this way. The Grand Canyon is not meant to be scary. (laughs) It's beautiful. It's breathtaking, but it is also immense, especially compared to us. And so if we, when you stand with your toes on the edge of it and you look down, you would be a fool not to be terrified. That's the idea here, church. The truth is, If we don't fear God, then we don't understand either this God or ourselves. We are fools, and we will live like fools. But when we do fear the Lord in this way, when we see who he is in relation to us, and when we tremble at that, it has a way of putting all our other fears into perspective. Because what we fear shapes the way that we live. And so next, to apply this, let's just consider how do we live differently 
when we fear the Lord most of all? How will we live differently? I want to share three takeaways from from this passage. First, when we fear the Lord in this way, we trust in his promise, not in our plans. We trust in his promise, not in our plans. I want to ask you this morning what you are afraid of. There's, there's a long list of things this, these days. It could be anything. Uh, we may fear the alarming, rapid moral change in our world. It's easier than ever, it seems, to worry that there is no fear of the Lord at all in this place. And many people do fear that. Or we may fear the volatility of, of all the conflict in our world, unrest in, in our culture, war in Europe. We may wonder when all this conflict will will build and spread and and come to our doorstep, threatening maybe even our lives. Or we may fear never quite getting the life that we want, whether that's with a family or with our career, a certain status in society, a certain amount of leisure. Maybe you feel like you've been waiting and waiting for these things, just wandering around in a strange foreign land, just wondering what the Lord is doing and when he will finally get to doing it. There are many things that we could be afraid of these days. That's true. But the question is, do we fear the Lord more than we fear all these other things? Here's how we can tell. What do we trust in? when we are faced with these lesser fears. Uh, When these fears loom over our lives, do we try to scheme and plot our way out of them? Do we try to preserve our own lives in this world, or do we fear the Lord enough to say, no, 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 our life belongs to him, and he has promised to give us eternal life. He has even come in the flesh to conquer our sin and death for us, and he has given us his eternal life. Church, whatever it is that you fear, will you let Christ be the solution to that fear? Will we trust that his grace is sufficient and that his power shines through even in our weakness, or will we try to wrestle with him for control of our lives as if they belong to us. It may be that we need to start fearing the Lord more than we fear all these other things. It may be we need to stop plotting and planning to preserve our lives and start trusting that in Christ, church, in Christ, we already have the promise of eternal, everlasting life with God. What else could we fear? This is what it looks like, I'm convinced, to truly fear the Lord more than anything or anyone else. And next, when we fear the Lord more than this world, number two, we live with integrity, not in deceit. We live with integrity, not in deceit. I want you to notice Abraham has this sort of prophetic role to play. He's told to be a blessing to the world in chapter 12. And then even here, uh, if Abimelech is going to live... Um, then it's Abraham who needs to basically go before him and, and, and be a messenger on his behalf. But I also want us to see that when we fear our, for our life in a fallen world, it's very tempting to make moral compromises so that we can keep feeling at home in this world. 
and sort of blend in. For example, uh, if we fear being rejected for our faith, uh, we might be a bit less clear or explicit about what we really believe. And when we speak about Jesus, we'll speak in very vague, general terms if we speak of him at all. Or if we're afraid for our financial future, we may be tempted to sort of exaggerate our work performance here or there in order to make a little bit more money and gain that security. Or uh, we may even just try to stockpile all the money that we make for ourselves and, and stop being generous with it at all. Or if we fear losing a friend because we hold to the Bible's clear historic teaching on gender, marriage, and sexuality like Abraham does here, we might just rewrite our entire sexual ethic on the spot in a way that serves us. See, depending on what we fear, I want you to notice, there may be a cost to living with integrity. That There may be a cost uh, to being honest about who we are and what we believe. There may be a cost to openly pursuing God's promise as he has revealed and called us to pursue it. And in order to avoid paying that cost, we will be tempted to make compromises, we will be tempted to deceive others. We will be tempted to bend or blur the truth. Why? To try and preserve our own lives as if they belong to us. But if we fear the Lord more than we feel, fear all of this stuff, then, then we don't have to live that way. We don't have to do this. See, if we recognize our unrighteousness and God's perfect holiness... And if sinning against him becomes the real worst-case scenario that we need to avoid at all costs, well, then all of a sudden, we can joyfully tell our neighbors about Jesus. All of a sudden, we can be, be grateful and even generous with the money he's given us. We can be faithful to God's design for gender and marriage and sexuality, which is clearly so important to him. Because as frightening as it may be to be without a friend or financial security or a good reputation, the truth is none of these things have any final bearing on our eternal state. None of them. None of these things could possibly preserve our life forever and ever. But this God, on the other hand, has every right to judge our souls and determine our eternal state forever. And not only that, but only he can preserve our life because our life belongs to him. And church, in Christ, he's already accomplished this for us. He's already preserved our life. And so let's fear him. Let's fear him and let's live with integrity in this world and let's pay whatever cost it may come with because even if it threatens our life, our life belongs to him. And those who fear him will live forever. Next and last, when we fear the Lord more than this world, number three, we will be a blessing to the world, not a curse. We will be a blessing, not a curse. Abraham was sent out to be a blessing. If anyone is going to pray and have Abimelech healed, it will be him. He's in this role. And yet I also want us to notice that when we get this wrong, and we fear other things more than our God, the end result is often that we cause trouble for this world that we are so afraid of. Some of us, even, may need to repent today because of our posture towards the world. 
because we have rightly seen that it is a wicked and unrighteous place, and, and we are understandably afraid of what that might mean for us, but we have failed to see is our unrighteousness in that whole equation. What we have forgotten is that we were of this world and are and need to be delivered out of it. We have forgotten that this whole promise is about a holy God redeeming sinners like us. And as a result, we may have a lot of complex thoughts about how corrupt our world is and a lot of ideas about what needs to be done about that, but very little fear of the Lord ourselves. Especially these days when this posture is incredibly common and even in some ways profitable, right? There are entire media empires, YouTube channels, podcasts designed to stoke our fear and convince us there is no fear of God in this place at all. We have to be wary of this. If we're listening to Christian teachers or leaders who only seem to condemn this world and to point out how wicked and hopeless everyone is, our antennas should should pop up. We should have a Genesis 20 antenna. And we need to ask ourselves, wait, wait, do they really fear the Lord? Or are they just afraid that the world does not? It's a big difference. <laughs> and we see here, not everyone that asks and wonders if there's any fear of the Lord in this world actually has fear of the Lord themselves. Church, when we fear the Lord more than we fear this world, we will be able to, more than that, we will be eager to bless this world, even when doing so may threaten our very lives. That is the way of Christ. He knew how wicked this world was. That's precisely why he came into it. Even when he did tremble in fear at the thought of being rejected by his father, and he pleaded with him that this cup should pass, he said what? He said, not my will, but your will be done. He did not scheme. He did not plot. He did not compromise. He went to the cross, and he laid down his life so that he could take it up again and then give it to us. So let's trust in that promise. Let's live in this world with integrity, and let's be eager to bless this world, even if it costs us our lives, because our life belongs to a holy, promise-keeping God.